0: thanks Aaron for sharing that testimony you know we and I appreciate just the opportunity to hear the not only the general plans but also just even the specific instances you know our, our lives I mean we can just kind of think of a big picture and Oh, you know, just how many people you led to the Lord or whatever. But I just love those stories of uh, God's sovereignty in an individual life because that's the same thing that God does in our lives, right, in our lives. God has orchestrated everything in our lives to bring us to saving faith, and, and we, it's, it's just so encouraging to see that, well, that's just what God does around the world as he brings different people from, from all across the world to, uh, <clears throat> to make disciples of Jesus Christ, uh, whether they're in uh, Kyrgy- Kyrgyzstan or, or here in the United States, so... Encouragement. We want to take a few moments just to to pray for uh, the Hongs, uh, for Aaron and Julia. We also just want to keep, if you just as a way of reminder, I'm sorry, I think it's all the smoke. uh, uh, But as a way reminder to remember to pray for our STMs, okay, too as well. We we just uh, our our Japan one teams should be home this week, and then we're sending out Argentina this tomorrow. The Argentina STM, so they're heading out uh, tomorrow morning, I believe. So. Pray for uh, John Mark, David, and Belinda. Uh, they'll be heading out. And then uh, Japan Team 2 is going to be heading out uh, sometime, I think, near the, the end of this week or the early next week. Uh, so just keep prayer, You can. Uh, there's uh, information on their bulletin, how to get updates and stuff like that. So let's go, Lord, in prayer and, uh, and before we go to the Word. Father, thank you so much that we can hear this report from Aaron and for what you are doing in his life. We praise you for your sovereignty. Thank you, Lord, how you've laid upon him. Uh, this burden to reach uh, the Kyrgyz people. Thank you, Lord, for not only uh, that you use him, but you've orchestrated that he would have a partner in his mission, and that uh, along with Julia, that they might serve you together. We're grateful, Lord, for their marriage and pray that you would bless their marriage together, bless their uh, their family, and cause them to be more effective in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as a husband and wife. We do pray for their future, praying that you would. Uh, Cause, give, grant him success in this new platform that which, uh, from which he wants to uh, share the gospel through, and we pray that you would um, open doors for the, the word of God, the word of truth, uh, for them. And then, Lord, we want to also not only just pray for the for the Hongs, but we do want to pray for our STMs. We continue to uplift to you our, our Japan One team, praying that you would cause them to finish well as they uh, wrap up this uh, this week. We also pray for our Argentina team heading out uh, tomorrow morning. May you give them travel mercies. Also, Lord, just continue to give all our teams uh, a servant's heart. Prepare them for the work that you're calling them to do. Help them to be faithful just to simply uh, speak the truth of the gospel, to support our missionaries and their work uh, across this world. And we want to pray that you continue to make your name known and orchestrating in your providential way. Uh, bringing people to Jesus Christ through uh, our teams as well as through the missionaries that we support and through your, <laughs> through the many little things that you are doing that we don't even know. But well, Father, we are uh, grateful that we can lift to you the work of missions. Pray that you would cause us as a church to continue to be faithful too. And we, uh, we pray that you, uh, even now as we can look to your word, may your spirit be our guide and our teacher. Open up your words to us and cause us to find hope in this word that you have uh, uh, for us from Isaiah. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> you can take with them and turn with me to the book of Isaiah this morning. We're gonna look at Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 22. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. Um, <clears throat> and because of that, we'll read the text as we go along. All right. You know, today's passage is a passage that really is a particularly has a particular focus on the future of Israel. It's a promise that God makes to uh, Israel, the people of uh, the chosen nation, uh, the ethnic Israel. And so sometimes when we come across passages like this... Uh, it is hard to see uh, maybe its immediate relevance or application to our own lives. But, this, uh, but I'd like to share with you a verse from the book of Romans, from the New Testament, that encourages us in how we ought to look at many of these Old Testament texts, especially Old Testament passages that, at least from initial reading, don't seem to have much immediate relevance for our day. And that's this verse in Romans 15, verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes, For whatever was written in earlier times was written... For our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. See, Paul here is speaking of the role of Old Testament Scriptures. The New Testament was not complete, and so he's writing and telling New Testament believers the role of the Old Testament Scriptures. And he tells us that the purpose of the Old Testament is to instruct us, to give us instruction. And as we receive this instruction through our perseverance, that is, through our, uh, that we, our faithfulness in, in walking with the Lord and encouragement that we receive from the Scriptures, there is a result. And that result is that we would have hope. So you see, the Old Testament Scriptures are given to us so that the people of God, New Testament people, can have hope. And that as we learn about God, even when we learn about things that may not directly Speak to us, but inevitably they reveal to us about who our God is, and they reveal. And the more we learn about who our God is, I hope that that encourages us more with hope. You know, we all need hope. Hope is that uh, uh, that confident expect- expectancy. It's not just wishful thinking, uh, but it's a firm assurance of the things that God has revealed in His Word. Things that are unseen, things that are still in the future, but yet we have confidence in them because God has said so. No matter who you are, no matter what circumstance you may find yourself today, we all need hope. We thrive on hope. Even if you don't have a biblical hope, hope for something in the future guides you, motivates you. Maybe you're hoping for, looking forward to that summer vacation. That's probably guiding you at this point. Maybe you're hoping someday to, uh, to buy a home or, or to, to own something that you've always wanted. That motivates you. There's always a hope of something in the future. Maybe a hope of a future spouse, hope of children, hope of a, an accomplishment or a paycheck that, gu- that guides and motivates us. In fact, when you lose hope, when you have nothing that you look forward to in the future, that you have confidence in the future, it actually... As we've seen in probably more recent days, it leads to some basically losing all hope and therefore wanting to end their lives. As Christians, we all need hope. and Thankfully, we have biblical hope. If you're a Christian who may be wrestling with sin, you need hope. If you're having a relationship problems, you're, you're having a, a... a with your spouse or maybe with your child, you need hope. Uh, if you are someone who may be Want something that you cannot have, and whether it be a, a job, for instance, or or maybe a spouse or a child, you need hope. Perhaps you're facing life threatening or lifelong illness or disability. You may need hope. Uh, perhaps you're wrestling with uh, various emotions like loneliness or worry or anxiety. You need hope. You may be facing financial difficulties. You f- need hope. And we find hope as Christians in the things of the Word of God. But I would like to particularly say that in our chapter today is a chapter that gives and offers hope. Hope first and foremost to the nation Israel. But I hopefully will show that it's a hope for you and me as well. Today's passage was written to the nation Israel to give them hope in the face of a, an impending judgment. A judgment that God declared, so therefore it wasn't going to not happen. It was going to happen. They were going to be basically conquered they're going to get become involved in a war with Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar is the name. And they will eventually be taken into captivity. They will be taken as slaves. They will be separated from their families. And some of them would lose their lives in this war. God tells, has prophesied that this would happen because of their sin. But here he offers them hope with a promise of their future. And this hope that they find, that they receive, is a hope that is centered upon one person. This, which we found, uh, which we saw earlier in Isaiah 59, 20, when God says a redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. See, the hope that God gives Israel in the face of impending judgment is this coming redeemer. It's, we know him as the, mess, the Messiah, or the Christ, Jesus Christ, who in Isaiah 53, Uh, would not only come, but he would come to bear the transgressions of many so that we might have forgiveness of sins. The New Testament, of course, reveals that the Messiah came some 2,000 years ago. But our passage today in Isaiah chapter 60 describes what is known as his second coming, his second advent sometimes we term it. And in this passage, Israel finds hope. Oftentimes in the last, in Isaiah, these last nine chapters, we will find the reference to his future coming, the, the Messiah's future coming, as the glory of the Lord, the Lord's glory. It is because when, when Christ comes again, we will see the glory of the Lord, just as we saw his glory at his first coming, full of grace and truth. But then, <clears throat> but in the future, we will see his glory completely revealed. And that is why it's sometimes referred to as the Lord's glory. And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage, we're going to see uh, four, if you will, events that take place in Israel when the Lord's glory will will appear. Four events that's going to take place in Israel, for Israel, if you will, when the Lord's glory will appear. And so keep in mind, this is written for Israel, but I hope at the end, we'll show you just its, its application for the church of Jesus Christ today as well. All right, so let's take a look at these four things. We'll kind of go through them pretty quickly. And that they may be encouragement to, you, to us. The first thing, the first event that's going to take place is that the Lord's glory will rise upon Israel. It will rise upon Israel. Look at verse 1 to 3 with me. And uh, <clears throat> Isaiah writes these words. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. When we come to the prophetical books in this chapter, particularly so, we see one of the, er, one of the particular challenges of interpreting prophecy. And that in prophecy often uses a mixture of literal and figurative language. And today is actually a great illustration of how to interpret literal and figurative uh, language. We actually see that context is key, always context. Our first rule is that we always take things literally. If we, as we can understand it, but unless the context indicates otherwise, and then we might consider a figurative use. We should always be careful in just declaring just because something doesn't make sense to us. Say, oh, that must be figurative. That's not something we've ever seen in this world. That must be a figure of speech. This must be a metaphor for something else. When we know our God, who can do all things, may just simply do that amazing, phenomenal thing of a miraculous nature that simply. We've never seen, but God can do it, just like a a virgin giving birth to a child. But here in these these first three verses, we see this use of a word that speaks of light shining. God is speaking to, uh, particularly to the city of Jerusalem, to you, that you, later on, verse 14, is identified as Zion, the city of Jerusalem. But by extension, the nation of Israel as a whole. Jerusalem is called to arise and to shine. They're to shine... Why? Because their light has come. Their light has come. And that light is equated with the glory of the Lord that's risen upon them. The words, uh, and so we wonder, is this light that they are to shine? And is the glory of the Lord that, that is also this light that shined upon them, has risen upon them? Is this meant to be figurative or literal? Well, the words risen, rise, and rising here in, in this passage... Are all common words, they're all actually the same root word. Uh, and they all refer, refer, in the Old Testament, used in the Old Testament, refer to the sun rising, just like when we use the term today. When you see sun rise, it means that it rises at the, and it starts shining its light. And that's this picture here. The Lord's glory is going to shine on Israel like the sun rising over the earth. It tells us in the usage of this idea of sun rising. Uh, indicates for us that, or argues for a figurative usage of light, especially in contrast even with verse 2 with the darkness metaphor as well. See, the coming of the Redeemer here is described as the glory of the Lord rising upon the city. Now, why is this important? Verse 2 explains. Why is the this figurative light, that is the light of basically the salvation that he's going to bring, the righteousness that he's going to bring, all that is accompanied with the salvation of the, that the Lord brings for Israel, why is this significant? Because there's darkness in the land. Notice verse 2. The darkness, though, is not just that it covers Israel. Notice where the darkness covers. It covers the earth. It covers the peoples. That's the nations. That the light that it shines over, over, rises over Israel is a light that is not only relevant for Israel, but it's irrelevant for the whole world. Because the world is covered in spiritual darkness. And one day, when Christ comes again, He's going to shine like the sun over Jerusalem. He's gonna. He will. He will bring. uh, He will bring the light of salvation to the world. And because of the light of God's glory will shine in Jerusalem, then Israel, in turn, is going to shine that light to the rest of the nation. That's why, in verse three, you'll notice. This connection with the nations will come to your light. Kings to the brightest generation. So the ruled and the rulers, they will all come because Israel is going to faithfully shine that light that Jesus shines on them. When the Redeemer comes, he will shine his light on Jerusalem, and she is going to shine like she's never shined before. This will take place at the Lord's second coming. When he comes back, when he establishes the millennial kingdom, it's what we even read today in our communion passage about Christ will come again when in his kingdom. The promise of the coming redeemer, like the rising of the sun, is going to give hope to Israel. Especially under this threat of enemy conquest and enslavement, they're going to know that. They're, even though they're going to be taken away, they're going to be captives in Babylon. They're going to witness the destruction of Jerusalem. They're going to witness the destruction of the temple. Everything that they hold dear, going to, their families will be separated. They will all become slaves. They'll be, uh, <clears throat> and, and they'll be removed from the very land that they were promised by God. God here offers them hope, hope of a future. One day the Lord will rise over you like the sun. That's where we get that whole idea, right? The rising of the sun. There's that, 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 that hope that we think of when we think of the rising of the sun. That Israel's future is bound up in the promise of the glory of the Lord rising upon them. And that gives her hope. But his coming would lead them to, to further blessing, which we find in our second event, which you find in verse 4 to 9. That is the Lord's glory will gather Israel, will gather Israel. Verses 4 through 9, in fact, almost 4 through uh, 17 is really elaboration of verse 3, of the nations coming to them. But let's read verse 4 to 9. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice Because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all these from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praise of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth will minister to you. They go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like the doves to their lattices? Surely the coastlands will wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Now, I mentioned that these verses really elaborate on the idea of verse 3, that these these nations are coming to the light of, of, the, of Israel that's shining because... Christ comes back and shines upon them. The nations are going to gather Jerusalem. And what's more, there's a picture of that they're all going to bring their wealth to Jerusalem. They're going to bring all their treasures to Jerusalem. All these things they're coming and bringing to you, that is, to Jerusalem. Isaiah had even written of this earlier, back in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 to 3. And you can just note that and read it. And we're. Uh, the nations are going to stream to Israel. They're all going to say to one another, Come, let us go up to the mountain. That's the temple mount of the Lord. They're all going to go to the worship. And that's what we see here in verse 7 of chapter 60, where they will offer sacrifices on the Lord's altar in the house of the Lord. By the way, it indicates to us that this, since this is the future Israel, that one day the temple, which is right now just, and if you go to Jerusalem, you just find a part of a wall standing. Uh, and but one day the temple is going to be rebuilt and, in Jerusalem and not only Israel will worship the Lord but the nations will go there to worship the Lord and, and this is great joy we're going to be able to approach God's throne and all the Gentiles can rejoice but I'm not sure if we think that Israel finds hope in the fact that the nations are going to go there I think we're we miss the main point. I believe the main point here is not that the nations or the main source of hope for Israel is not the fact that the nations go to them and that the nations are going to bring riches and treasures to them. But what Israel would have been most comforted in this passage in this promise is found at the very first and the last parts of verse uh, the first 4 and verse, uh, verse uh, 9. That is, lift up your eyes round about you and see, they all gather together, they come to you. So that's the nations. Who else will come? Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters will be carried in the arms. When the nations come, the greatest treasure that they're going to bring is that they're going to bring the sons and daughters of Israel back to the land. And that's confirmed for us. Look in verse 9. Surely the coastlands will wait for me, the ship's charts will come first. To what? To bring your sons from afar you know it's uh, in our news today uh, the news followed in you know the recent news you've been hearing a lot about families being separated and that pulls at the heartstrings of everybody who has a family everybody who's a family everybody knows that how painful it would be to separate be separated from your sons and your daughters even for a little while and but and so you can imagine when israel experienced the wars that they experienced and the the diaspora that was spread through the suffering the persecution uh, we can think of even World War II and, and how they were, uh, had, were cast afar. That Israel as a nation are, are separate all across our world. But one day God promises to Israel, and especially to Israel pre, prior to the Babylonian captivity, says I'm going to bring you all back. I'm going to bring you all back. I'm going to gather your sons and daughters back to you. You will be reunited in the land. This is the great hope and this is the great encouragement. We've actually seen this already back in Isaiah 49, when the Lord promised to them, Then the very thing, same thing, I will lift up my hands to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. The nations are going to be brought back, and they're going to they're come to Israel, and they're going to bring the sons and daughters of Israel with them. When the glory of the Lord appears, they will bring along them all that Israel Counts dear, and that is their people. He will gather them back to the promised land that he promised to Abraham and his descendants. And this will, this will happen not just because he particularly chose Israel, not because he promised them, not just because he likes them or uh, particularly they're, they're worthy, but as we look in the text, it tells us that he does so because for his name, for the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel. Because he has glorified you. Israel exists. Why God fulfills his promise to Israel is so that he would be glorified. Now, this leads us to a third event uh, that may uh, really a continuation of the second, but we can discern it. I'll call it a third. Is that this, that the Lord's glory will, when he comes, will protect Israel? He will protect them from the nations that uh, seek to their destruction. And in these verses, verses 10 to 18, we see a lot of different things that are said. We could probably uh, break it down much further. But I would just simply point out that if you can take notice, look for all the words that describe security, safety, peace, well-being. That they are going to be a land that is no longer under the threat of their neighbors, but they will be helped by their neighbors. They will be helped by the nation's. You look at verse 10 to 14, we're going to see that what God's going to do when he comes is that he's going to subdue the nations. The nations which seek to destroy Israel are going to be subdued. Verse 10, foreigners will build up your walls. And so you can just even think about that. Stop right there. Who's going to destroy the walls? Foreigners. When Babylon comes, when Assyria, when Assyria came, they assaulted the walls of Jerusalem. Foreigners are going to destroy, but God says in the future, the foreigners will build up your walls. And their kings will minister to you, for in my wrath I struck you, and in my favor I had compassion on you. What God reveals here is that what, everything that happens to Israel is because of God, because they're his people. He struck them with judgment from Assyria, with judgment from Babylon, because of his wrath, because of their sin. But he also tells them that he's going to have compassion on them. He's going to see them, remember them, and he's going to show grace to them, his favor to them. So they're going to have their walls built up, that which provides security for them. Then, verse 11, your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night. You know that? How many of you guys leave your gates or your doors open day and night, 24 7 in San Francisco? You might as well just put a sign that says, Robbers, come here and get your stuff. Right? Because that's dangerous. We won't even do that. But here, what's wonderful is that their gates are going to be open. The city's gates are going to be open. And the city, of course, is a city level. It's meant to protect them from intruders. And, but it's going to be open. It's always open for business. It's always open for worship. The men, the nations are going to go to them. They will bring the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. You, uh, for the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. See, the, the repercussions of God is going to subdue the nations. Christ will come to subdue the nations. The glory of Lebanon will come to you. The juniper, the boxer, the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I shall make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. And all those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion, or the Holy One of Israel. One day... All the nations are going to go there, and they're going to recognize Israel for what it is. It is the city of the Lord. Right now, why do people want to defeat Israel? Because there's disagreement about who that city belongs to. There's particularly disagreement about who does the Temple Mount belong to. Three different religions can make a claim to why they belong on the Temple Mount, and and it's a pretty complicated uh, historical kind of uh, uh, seeking of of, uh, peace in that area. But for Israel, one day that will be solved. One day Israel will discover, well, the nations will discover when Christ comes back and dwells on that land, dwells in that place, it will be clear. The nations will recognize this is not the city of this country or that country. This is the city of the Lord. And who is this temple belong to? This place, this temple belongs to the Holy One of Israel, to God, the Lord God. It will be made very clear in that day. Those who afflict and despise Israel will be brought low. They will be brought into captivity. And so we see the Lord subduing the nations. He's going to protect Israel from all those who would threaten them. Verses 15 18 kind of describes the results of God's subduing the nations, what's going to result for Israel. We'll read it all uh, four verses. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of nations and suck the breast of kings then you will know that I the Lord am your savior and your redeemer the mighty one of Jacob Jacob instead of bronze I will bring gold instead of iron I will bring silver instead of wood bronze instead of stones iron and I will make peace your administrators and righteousness your overseers violence will not be heard again in your land nor of devastation or destruction with your borders but you will call your walls salvation your gates praise The result here that we see from God protecting her from her enemies and God helping to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem is that she, Jerusalem, will become an everlasting source of pride and joy for the nation Israel. She will receive the wealth of the nations, but most importantly, she will know, she herself as a nation will know that the Lord God is her savior, her redeemer. She is the mighty one of Jacob, their forefather. Along with but along with all the precious metals that are the nations are going to bring, God will bring the most precious thing to them, and that is precious peace and precious righteousness into the city. There is no peace and righteousness in Jerusalem to this day. As a whole, there are there's always a remnant of believers there, but as a whole, the ethnic Israel, Jewish the Jewish nation, do not worship the Lord as and they do not recognize his provision for their sins through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. As you know, uh, if you just follow the news, uh, Israel is far from experiencing this prophecy. She is still surrounded by enemies, she's still constantly under threat. But one day, she will know peace and righteousness. Violence and devastation and destruction will be replaced with the peace and with the salvation of the Lord. All these things are going to change when the Lord rises over Israel. Well, we move quickly then to the fourth and final event. And that is the most significant of all. It's really almost a summary of everything. It's a summary and a a comprehensive event that's going to take place. And that is the Lord's glory will bless Israel. Verse 19 to 22. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane. For you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. And the days of your morning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, and the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. You see here, Isaiah returns to the theme of light. He speaks to Uh, Particularly twice here in verse 19 and verse 20, he says, "You will have the Lord for an everlasting light." And we already remembered from verse 1 to 3 that the Lord there will be will figuratively be a light of salvation from the darkness of sin. But is that what is meant here? There are some who there are godly people who disagree about this, but I do not believe so. This isn't just a mere repetition of verses 1 to 3 of the point that's made there. Because the sun and the moon that are spoken here, or spoken, given in contrast to the light of the Lord, don't shine upon us any figurative things. Their, their light is a literal light. And when contrasted with that, then therefore I believe that the light of the Lord that comes, that's when he comes upon us, is actually going to be an actual literal light. That when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he's going to shine more brightly than any source of light that you and I have ever seen on the face of this earth. Of course, this phenomenon sounds completely strange and foreign to us. We do not know any light sources really as bright as the sun. I mean, maybe farthest, biggest stars and all that. But in our walking day to earth, the sun is the brightest thing. It shines so brightly. We receive so much heat from it. But one day, God is going when send his son back again. His son will shine with a brighter light than even the sun and the moon. That the people who live in Israel and the people who live in the world will no longer need the sun and the moon. However, I would, and though this may seem strange to us, it really is not foreign to the scriptures in fact, uh, we see in First Timothy 6.16 that God dwells in unapproachable light. Uh, Psalm 104 verse 2 describes how he covers himself with light as with a cloak. And so if God who is described as basically dwelling in unapproachable light, as light's so bright you can't approach it. Then it would not be surprising that when the Lord, when His glory comes, the revelation of His of His character is being that as His Son comes again, He will come in such great bright and glorious light. This not only this furthermore fits the, the prophecy of the New Jerusalem in the eternal state in Revelation 21:23, where the city of Jerusalem there will uh, this will no longer need the sun or the moon for the glory of God has illumined it. Its lamp is the Lamb. That is, the Messiah. The presence of the glory of the Lord will be so significant that the physical phenomenon of light, his light, will accompany that spiritual blessing of his salvation light. So here it will be that the physical phenomenon will basically match the spiritual reality that when he comes, he will bring salvation that will expand the whole world and it will be accompanied with this bright and glorious light. The result is that, as uh, the text says, the days of your mourning will be over. No longer will Israel experience sorrow, and this is great hope. Because when we need hope, we're usually because you experience sorrow of some sort. And for Israel, they needed hope like this. They needed to know that one day He's going to come. He's going to bring salvation. He's going to save them. We live in a world cursed by sin. All that we face, all that we causes, our sorrow. Is because of the general curse of sin upon the world, but also the consequences of our own personal sins or the sins, personal sins of others. But one day, the problem of sin will be resolved for the world, but particularly for Israel. That's what we see in verse twenty-one. Then all your people will be righteous. That is, for all of Israel will be brought to repentance and faith when the Messiah comes. All Israel will be saved, as we read in Romans eleven. Last week, he will come to fulfill his new covenant promises, to forgive their iniquity, to remember their sins no more, according to Jeremiah 31-34. But it's not just the new covenant that the glory of the Lord will fulfill. In these verses, particularly the latter two verses, we see this emphasis on the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And that's why I say the Lord will bless Israel. Because when you think about the Abrahamic covenant, we go to Genesis 12, 1 to 3, you look there, the, the Abrahamic covenant given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all their descendants is threefold. There's a promise of a land that he would give to them. There's a promise of the people, a people that would become a mighty nation. And there's a promise of a blessing. God says, I will bless you, and through you, I will bless the families of the earth. That's the God's promise. That's his Abrahamic covenant promises to Israel. And that's what we see right here in the end of chapter 60. They, first of all, all your people will be righteous. That's the blessing. They're going to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, they're going to then shine that light to the rest of the nations. Secondly, the land. They will possess the land forever. That's a promise. And if you can imagine, Israel is going to be cast out land. That's encouragement because they're going to be brought back. Even now, I'm sure Israel was... Before World War II, there was a lot of just uh, lost hope, but there was always these promises that reminded them that you will be brought back to the land. Even now, they don't have the full extent of the promised land, but they are in the land. One day, God will bring them all back to this land. They will possess it, own it forever, never to be threatened again. And then not only will they have the land, but they're going to have a people. Notice the smallest one of Israel will become a land. The least one is going to be a mighty nation. God's going to cause them to multiply. And they're going to be uh, as numerous as they've ever been before. More numerous than the stars, as God promised to Jacob. Certainly, this future covenant blessings comforted Israel as they faced their deportation from the land. But God comforted them, reminded them that one day he will fulfill his promises to them. Now, today we've seen these four events that will happen for the glory of the Lord and when, when the glory of the Lord appears. And I think for, because I've emphasized for us that this is what will take place for Israel, unless you're an Israelite, you may not be jumping in your seats. You know, maybe not. Maybe some of you are. Okay. That's great. Therefore, okay, but when I read this, I said, wow, this is an exciting thing. This is exciting to have, see this happen for Israel. And there's a part of that. Hopefully, we should because Israel, God, being God chosen, is we should be excited that what's going to happen when God fulfills His promises. Because every time God fulfills His promises to others, that just is greater hope that God is going to fulfill His promise to you and me. There's just that general hope. But this picture not only gave hope to Israel, and because and they had a hope that was certain because a hope that is based upon the Lord. In fact, based upon this promise of the coming of the Lord. But his coming is a hope for, not only for the Jews, but it's a hope for you and me. In fact, Paul brings this out in Romans 15, just verse 12. And he says again, Isaiah says, There should come the root of Jesse, and he who rises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. If you believe that God sent his son to die for our sins 2,000 years ago, then you will not find it hard to believe that God will send his son to us again. And his second appearing, his come second coming, his will be great, will be, if you can imagine, will be a greater event than his first coming, which we all celebrate with great joy. For in that day he will come and bring to pass all that remains of his promises to Israel and the church. He will bring his salvation promises to completion. And the sovereign Lord will bring all that he promised to completion shining his light upon Israel, shining his light upon the nations so that there will be salvation throughout this world, all across this earth. But I give a second word of encouragement, a word of exhortation in light of our text today. Not only that, hopefully you and I will find hope. So whatever you're facing, look to the future. Look to the future. A lot of times we lose hope because we look upon what we're facing now. But when we look to the future, when you look to that day when Christ comes again, I hope you'll, and you grasp it, every and that's for eternity, by the way, that will make everything that we wrestle with pale in comparison. Doesn't mean it's going to take away the pains. Doesn't mean it's going to take away the sorrows in this life. You will wrestle with that, okay? It's just part of living in a sin-cursed world. But there is always that hope, there's that encouragement from the scripture, instruction, encouragement to persevere, encouragement to from the scriptures to keep on trusting in the Lord because and what's coming ahead is far greater than what we have now. That hope may it strengthen you, brothers and sisters. Secondly, I would just can't help it, can't miss this point. The principle is this: that those whom Christ shines His light upon are to shine that light to others. I love having. Aaron come and share along with his wife, Julia, about uh, their missions endeavor. It just reminds me of uh, how we have been received a light and we need to shine that light. And I love how we're sending our STMs out there. And it's great that these few individuals are going out there. But I, I think that we must also remember that we today as a church have re- continue to have responsibility. We who've seen the light of Christ need to shine that light to others. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, "'For God who said light shall shine out of the darkness "'is the one who has shown in our hearts.'" to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Brothers and sisters, you who have had the light of Christ shine upon you, that should change and transform our lives. And I hope the more you grasp that, the more you will shine that light and share it with others. And that's our responsibility uh, because of Christ. All right, Uh, Let's go out and shine our lights, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. And Lord, thank you for the light of Christ that you shine upon us. Thank you for bringing to us the gospel. Thank you for causing us to understand who Jesus is. Lord, we thank you that your work's not done, that Christ is going to come again, and he's going to bring the salvation of Israel to completion, and he's going to bring the salvation of this world to completion. And, Father, we look forward to that day when you will reign, when your son will reign once again on this earth, when your glory will be made manifest for all to see, when there will be no more darkness, there will only be the light of Christ. Father, we thank you for that hope and promise. And thank you that, Lord, you have, you have uh, blessed us as Gentiles, and enable, and allowing us to experience the blessings of the new covenant, forgiveness of sins through Christ. Father, we do pray that you would come again soon, that you would bring your that you would bring salvation and bring to pass. We know that you are have not forgotten forgotten your promises. We know Lord that you continue uh, to bring about the salvation of souls. Father, we know that you are hastening the coming of your son. And Father, we pray, oh Lord come. Oh Lord come. Father, we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a wonderful fellowship. Uh, Get a chance, if you don't, uh, to greet Aaron and Julia before they head on home and uh, you're dismissed.